Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I am your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 21, August 9th through August 15th, 1861, or more simply, Wilson's Creek. Just a few brief announcements. Once again, there is a Patreon episode from July posted on the Patreon feed. Should have another episode posted, uh, hopefully uh, fairly soon. As soon as I'm able to uh, put that up, I will certainly let you know. So be on the lookout for additional Patreon content. right? And any feedback about the memoir review or the movie review or, or, or whatever... Uh, that is that is greatly appreciated. So if you would like to see something, uh, make sure to send to that email, cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Last week, we introduced Sherman into the war officially and had a nice long discussion on the use of balloons. This week, we have the second major battle of the war. For this engagement, we need to head back to Missouri and check in on what's going on with our pals Nathaniel Lyon, and Sterling Price. When we last talked about Missouri, we were present for the Battle of Carthage, where Missouri state troops overwhelmed a numerically inferior force under Franz Siegel before withdrawing into the southwestern corner of the state. This would be to train up their relatively raw uh, recruits for a showdown with Nathaniel Lyon and his federal forces. Lyon has been building up his own Army of the West, with additional regiments from Kansas, Iowa, as well as U.S. regulars. The regulars had with them one Thomas Sweeney, an Irishman who would lead Irish troops in a failed invasion of Canada after the war. And this is a particularly less well-known incident that I think is pretty interesting, so I think we're going to have an additional episode about it, uh, but that will be probably down the line. There's also the first Polish-American to graduate from West Point, serving as an artillery officer in George Sokolski. Officers in these regular troops and artillery have many years of military experience, so they're going to be uh, very valuable to Lyon. IO troops were very much like their Missouri counterparts in that they were mostly made up of some German immigrants, so they have that in common. Kansas troops would be feared by the populace of Missouri for potential reprisals from bleeding Kansas. And there were some instances as we moved down the line of such reprisals, so their fear is well-founded. After Carthage, the new regiments would move to Springfield in the southern portion of the state. The Union would struggle to adequately supply their men, though, which would lead to lower morale. Lyon did request for more supplies and reinforcements, but the new commanding officer in Missouri, John C. Fremont, would not send them. We can give John C. Fremont a bigger introduction in a later episode. Much in the same predicament as McDowell in Virginia, many of the enlistment periods would expire soon, and due to this lower morale, many would simply return home. Lyon was undaunted, but constantly feared an attack by the rebel forces. Despite the good performance of his federal troops, his army was tired by many marches to locate 
a foe that was simply not there. Cavalry was not used properly by the Connecticut general either. As a result, he has a little less than 6,000 men at his disposal, which is less than the Confederate force gathered against him. Last we check in with Carthage, the state troops had been able to spin their running skirmish into positive press, but now they would not be alone in facing off against the Union. Confederate forces from Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas would form up and combine with the Missouri troops to create a 12,000-strong Western Army. At its head was the only general in the Confederacy at this point not to have formal military training, Ben McCullough. Originally from Tennessee, he relocated to Texas during the Texas Wars of Independence. Actually, he was going to follow one Davy Crockett, which would have led him to a place called the Alamo, but Ben fell ill and did not make the rendezvous, fortunately enough for him. McCullough would participate in the Battle of San Jacinto, as well as serve in the Mexican-American War under Zachary Taylor. Prior to that adventure, he had joined the Texas Rangers and fought against native tribes. Needless to say, he was one tough dude. During this campaign, he would wear a brown suit rather than a uniform and joined an advanced cavalry force to take shots at retreating Federals. Under McCullough is Nicholas Bartlett, or Nota Bene Pierce, who will rise to command troops in Arkansas. Nota Bene was a nickname he received at West Point. Louise Herbert of Louisiana and James McIntosh of Arkansas, whose brother actually enlists in the Union Army, a real brother against brother scenario, would also be the generals under the command of McCullough. McCullough is given overall command of the Confederate forces, but will bump heads with Sterling Price, whose troops are technically not part of the Confederate States, so it gets a little tricky. The Texan does not think too highly of the fighting abilities of the Missouri State Troops, even though they've been training in order to become a more effective fighting force. Before the Battle of Carthage, the Arkansas and Louisiana troops had actually briefly marched into Missouri, making McCullough the first Confederate general to launch an invasion into federal territory. The Texan wanted to launch an even further invasion of Northern Territory by assaulting Fort Scott in Kansas, but was denied. This is sort of a play on his orders. His orders were to protect, or at least help protect, Arkansas and Indian Territory. So an attack into Kansas he sees as a necessary move to help secure those, those areas. Events leading up to the battle were relatively uneventful. There were skirmishes between the two armies with little gain on either side. The town of Forsyth was looted by federal troops. Cavalry skirmishes would be conducted near Springfield, where Lyon's army was waiting for supply and reinforcement. Also critically, they were waiting for pay for the soldiers, which I can tell you in the recruiting world, money isn't the only thing, but it can be a pretty powerful motivator for sure. Fremont would send nothing. 
He was concerned with a Confederate force under Gideon Pello, who had occupied New Madrid in the eastern part of the state. In addition, there were also state partisans under Jeff Thompson, who were already operating in that region. In fact, Lyon received orders that might have suggested to retreat to nearby rail hub of Rolla. By then, though, things were already in motion. As mentioned, federal troops were attempting to locate the Missouri State Troops, as well as the rest of the Western Army. Lyon was not aware that the Confederates had combined their troops and were camped near a place called Wilson's Creek. The creek is Wilson, and the battle became Wilson's fun fact. So it is not, in fact, Wilson's Creek, it is Wilson Creek. Prisoners captured during a skirmish revealed this to be true, and the Federals estimated incorrectly that there were 20,000 men in the Western Army ready to pounce on Springfield. The funny thing was they were right. McCullough was ready to withdraw into Arkansas when Price reportedly gave the general an ultimatum. This encounter may very well be false, but the decision was made to attack the Union Army, scheduled for the 10th of August. Nyan, who did not want to wait any longer or withdraw his force, would try to make the first move. It should be noted, more of his volunteer troops were nearing the end of their enlistment period and wanted to go home. Feeling this kind of pressure, Lyon would attack the enemy, even if it meant he was going to be greatly outnumbered, having a scant 5,000 men. Originally, he would march his forces south and take on the rebels to allow the rest of the withdrawal to Rolla, as Fremont had ordered. Fran Siegel would convince the red-bearded general of an alternative plan, dividing their forces with Lyon, attacking from the north, and Siegel attacking from the east. This was not a plan to check the enemy and then retreat. This was a plan designed to rout the Confederate forces. Despite there being some objections amongst the officers in the Army of the West, Lyon was agreeable to this new course of action, and the Union forces set out in the night on August 9th. Lyon's performance had been waning since his victories early in the conflict, and now he would not leave without giving the enemy what they deserved. In a weird move, the Confederates had withdrawn their advanced pickets in preparation of their attack, which was set for the next day. Interestingly, similar to First Bull Run, they were beaten to the punch. When the Union forces began their attack, this meant there was very little advance notice. Lyon would have in his force two Kansas regiments, the Iowa Contingent, U.S. Regulars, and a Missouri Regiment commanded by Peter Osterhaus. Osterhaus was a Prussian who had participated in the revolutions of 1848 prior to immigrating to Illinois before moving to Missouri. He would rise in the ranks in the Union Army and arguably become one of the most successful foreign-born generals of the war. He survives all the way until 1917. Lyon also had batteries commanded by Captain James Totten, Lieutenant Sokolsky, and Lieutenant John Dubois. These artillery pieces would wreak havoc on the Missouri State troops. Not in the manner of casualties, but taken so unaware, many of the men would flee, drastically reducing the effectiveness of the Confederate units. Lyon would form his men on a hill, known today as Bloody Hill, prime for offensive action. In a weird twist because of strange optics, the battle actually cannot be heard, 
by the rest of the Confederate units. And especially, it could not be heard by their commanding officer, Ben McCullough, and Sterling Price, who would have a good breakfast before being alerted via rider of the danger. Price would go to his Missouri State Troops, while McCullough would look to organizing a better defense of his Confederate forces. The Pulaski Artillery, which had received training from Totten prior to Arkansas seceding from the Union, began to open fire and receive return fire from the Union batteries. From the nearby Ray Farm, they would hold a small part in halting the Union advance. William Woodruff, the captain of the battery, would write after the battle, My boys stood in it like heroes, not a man flinched, although balls came like hailstones for all that time. Several of the artillerymen of the Pulaski Light Artillery were only 17 years old. The training that the Missouri State Troops had undertaken would pay off, as they would be organized into an effective defense against the Union forces. The Pulaski Battery was seen as a potential issue, because based off its position, it could fire down the length of the Union line. Lyon would send U.S. regular troops in an attempt to take the battery. The Confederates would counter this move by sending the 3rd Louisiana, McRae's Independent Battalion, and the 2nd Arkansas Mounted Rifles to support the Arkansas gunners. Danridge McRae served as the Inspector General of the Arkansas State Troops and would continue to serve in the Confederate Army in this theater as a general. The Louisiana troops would take fire from the regulars as they attempted to form up. James McIntosh would direct the Louisiana men into position to drive back the U.S. troops. Just based off of available space, the Confederates would outflank the regulars who were lying down in the cornfield of the Ray Farm. This would force the withdrawal of the Yankee attackers and a Confederate advance after them toward the creek. But once they had done so, the batteries on Bloody Hill were able to target the infantry, which scattered to get out of range and the sights of the gunners. Meanwhile, Siegel's men had been doing extremely well. Lyon's assault had begun at approximately 5.30, as did his. Not having anything to synchronize their advances, this was a pretty marvelous feat. His battery was even able to provide supportive fire for the troops on Bloody Hill. No real defense was set up to face him. Some 1,500 men had scattered upon his arrival. The German had swung his men from the east to come from the south, potentially hitting the Confederates in a pincer move. His Missouri regiments were able to advance, and if he could take the initiative, he could exploit the Southerners. Amazingly, though, he did not attempt to make contact with Lyon. In fact, he had given an order not to fire, expecting to run into his allied force. The men from the 1st Iowa had some companies wearing gray. McCullough gathered what men he could to meet this threat. Gathering what he could of the 3rd Louisiana, the old Texas Ranger realized he could take advantage of the way Siegel had deployed his men. Relatively inexperienced troops were protecting the battery and Siegel's brigade. If he could hit them, the other Missouri volunteers might be put to rout. While forming up for the attack, a Union sentry was actually preparing to take down the Confederate general. 
but a well-placed shot from a man from Louisiana ended that venture. The Confederate troops from Louisiana would pour fire into the Missouri Volunteers, almost at point-blank range. Even though Siegel had them outnumbered, the right concentration of fire had broken his line. The German general was still concerned that he was the subject of a friendly fire incident, crying out in his native tongue that they were making a mistake. But it was no mistake. The 3rd Louisiana would capture guns from the battery and put into flight the Missouri's troops. Siegel, it was said, was wrapped in a blanket around his shoulders to mask his rank, and might have been the first Yankee to make it back to Springfield. Some of these men were captured on their return journey, including Lieutenant Colonel Ansem Albert, a Hungarian and veteran of the Hungarian War of Independence. Meanwhile, Price had finally formed his Missouri troops, ready to make assaults on the Union position on Bloody Hill. Because of the terrain, the assaults from the state troops had been taken rather uneven in their advances. Somewhere in this action, Richard Waitman, who we talked about at the Battle of Carthage, is mortally wounded. Offensive, originally, the Union troops had turned defensive. Some of the Kansas troops were armed with converted flintlock muskets, which fired buck and ball, a great weapon to use in this situation. This is more like a shotgun, so sort of talked about that in our armaments episode. So the Missourians had not made any headway. Still, the Union general would see that he was outnumbered and had no idea what kind of misfortune had befallen Siegel. He would try to form a counterattack against the Missouri troops. Lyon had already been wounded in a couple of places and had one horse shot from under him. He was convinced to try again. In this assault, he would be hit in the chest and die almost instantly. Thus, unfortunately, we say goodbye to Nathaniel Lyon, the first Union general to be killed during the Civil War. But the battle was not over yet. In fact, it's during this fight that we have one of the more strange incidents uh, in regards to uniforms. Men from Kansas, in all the smoke and confusion, ran into a Missouri state contingent. Both sides believed that they were friendly, and so they began to march together. Soon, they realized their mistake, and the Kansans broke away from their foe. It's also a great illustration in terms of the lack of visibility in the battlefield. So there's all this smoke that's making things confusing. And if you're uh, you're wearing gray or if your enemy is wearing blue and uh, there's all these different, uh, different colors going on, uh, it can be pretty confusing. The fact that their commanding officer was dead was kept from the Union troops. At this point, Bart Pierce's Arkansas troops were arriving to force the issue on the enemy. Pierce had been relatively contempt with sending out most of the battle, his men facing to the east. This is most likely because it was unclear to the southerners if all the Union columns were engaged and they did not want to be hit with a third surprise. Samuel Sturgis, a U.S. regular who had served in the Mexican-American War, had taken over. He held the northern line against the state troops who were arrayed against him. A cavalry charge from parts of Elkanah Greer's Texas Cavalry was successfully repulsed, although if the Texans had charged in concert with Arkansas Mountain Troops, it very well could have worked and broken the back of the Union line. Greer's Texans 
were said to be one of the best units in the Western Army. Greer himself had served in the war with Mexico, and one of his companies were armed with Colt repeating rifles. Sturgis organized an orderly withdrawal of his men. During this part of the action, there was a caisson left by one of the batteries. Lorenzo Immel and Nicholas Bouquet would run back to retrieve the caisson under fire, and for this bravery, both were awarded the Medal of Honor. By around 1230, the Union Army had gathered as much of the wounded as they could and retreated from the hill. The Confederates almost did not want to believe that they were gone. Pierce wrote after the battle that, We watched the retreating enemy through our field glasses, and we were glad to see them go. The fight for Bloody Hill had lasted almost five hours. Confederate troops were spent, and the commanders did not wish to pursue their foe. Temperatures in the August sun had reached well over 100 degrees. Over 1,300 Union casualties, compared with over 1,200 Confederate, lay on the field. To put this into perspective, because the Union Army was outnumbered, they did suffer a casualty rate of 24.5%. Amazingly, though, both sides would claim victory. Despite Siegel's route and the Confederates holding the field, they had accomplished their initial goal. If not, the new objective posed by Lyon and Siegel. So they had checked the rebels and they were able to successfully retreat. Union troops would reach Springfield and fall back further to Rolla as Fremont had intended. But we shall save the final wrap-up for next week. That's a good place to end up. The second major battle of the war in Wilson's Creek is officially in the books. We have had a good run with Nathaniel Lyon through these early episodes, but tragically he's leaving our story. And oddly enough, he will be missed as probably the most energetic general in the case of Missouri. Next week, we'll have a final wrap-up of Wilson's Creek, as well as talk about a few more things. The Muni of the 79th New York, as well as Native American involvement. I think to close out as well, after we have now had two larger battles, we should take time to mention Civil War medicine. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Once again, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com, and feedback is appreciated. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, all are welcome. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great week.